Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. If you're visiting today, it's really great to have you. I would like to open up reading right out of Luke chapter 24. I'd be glad if you read that with me. I'm going to read this text, which takes us right into that moment on the first morning of this resurrection. And here we'll read about the women in Jesus' life and ministry that came down with him from Galilee region. And they're going to be here at this dawn-breaking moment, which is just phenomenal. We'd be remiss to read it too quickly and not hear the intensity of what's going on. So read with me in Luke chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, They went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. These are the the women. And they found the stone rolled away. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling Apparel. That's the Bible's way to talk about flannel. (laughs) In dazzling, I'm just joking. This is bright, white, radiant clothing, okay? They're there. These two men in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and they bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living? among the dead. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinners, and he must be crucified, and on the third day rise, and they remembered his words. They remembered his words. And returning to the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. And to all the rest, yes, the ladies taught the the apostles about the resurrection. And now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed like an idle tale to them, a fictional story. And they did not believe them, but Peter, Peter rose and he ran to the tomb And stooping down in, he looked into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Marveling not, oh, this is marvelous. Marveling in terms of this is bewildering, this is astonishing, this does not compute. Pray with me. Father, this is your word, and it's profound, and it draws us into contemplation about what it's like to stand in an empty tomb and to look out. I pray that as we think about resurrection here this morning, you would help me to teach it well. And I pray that through your spirit, you would help it to register in our hearts and minds in a way that makes Resurrection Sunday turn into Resurrection Monday and Resurrection Tuesday and Resurrection every day. We love you, and we trust you with our lives. Amen. Do we have an empty tomb theology? 
Is that the way that we think about our lives and about God? Is it the absolute central core of who we are? Or do we have an average world mentality which might be a a tomb-based anthropology? It's all going to die anyway. We will end up in a grave anyhow. And maybe we have that, but we use some Christian words to describe what's ultimately just that. That's what I wanna talk about today. I wanna talk to you a little bit about my life. I wanna take you to 1 Corinthians 15, and I wanna think about resurrection as something that is not just something we hope for later on. It's something that matters on our Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Sundays. So I'll take you first to a place in my life that's a little bit brutal. I'm sitting on a small porch in front of a small beige house on a small little plot of green countryside in the middle of Minnesota. It's evening time and I'm done with a week of work. I'm looking out over this field. There's some deer down by the oak trees eating acorns. The sun is setting. It's very beautiful. And I was depressed and I was reflecting on the utter pointlessness, the absurdity of life. I had a little bottle of Jim Beam next to me. Growing up in a so-called Christian home that was filled with endless condemnation, violence, and physical abuse, I had sort of learned to understand Christianity in this very odd way. I had scars on my skin, scars on my psyche, scars in my soul. And so I'm sitting there on this porch remembering all of these things that I had learned and thinking about the pointlessness of life. I remember growing up when that deep darkness would rear its ugly head in our home, we had a quick way of understanding it. It could be beaten up and we would say, it's, it's Jesus's, it's Jesus's uh, fix that will make this better. That happens later. What happened here was just Satan's fault. Thankfully, we're going to heaven at some point. It helped us feel better momentarily, kind of like a spiritual whiskey. There I am on the porch reflecting on failing to meet my own goals, failing to be good to my parents, to my peers, to other people. I'm feeling a guilt, and I'm I'm upset about that guilt because I never asked for that. The world gave that to me, my Christian society that I had grown up in. It was their fault that I felt guilty. I'm just being a human. But I still felt it, even though I tried to reason it away. And so there I am sitting. Most of all, what I realized was that this life simply leads to a grave. It ends up in a tomb, and it ends up in a full tomb. Everything that you do, everything you accomplish, gets buried right there with you. Yeah, there were certain moments in my life that were very cool the relaxing vacation, the exciting weekend camping. There were great moments that seemed worth pursuing, like like the pleasures of sex or the fun times with friends or adventures. I had kind of taken on a, a wandering way of life where I was kind of moving from one fun time to the next. But you still, in the quiet moments, recognize that it is ultimately pointless. I found myself on that porch postured in a perfect position to plan for that kind of future. 
and that was with a Fox Sterlingworth 12-gauge side-by-side shotgun with the stock on the porch on the deck floor and the barrel under my chin and my finger dancing on the trigger. I had come to a place in my life where I really was willing to admit the pointlessness of life and it was time to just check out. This was not all that long ago. I was so broken and so hurting. I had a parched and empty heart and I had eyelids that were very, very wet. They were soaking. I think there are a great many parched hearts and soaking wet eyelids in our world. You wouldn't know it by the nice and nicer and nicest ways that we present ourselves to each other often. But I know from working with people for several years now that we are all deeply suffering in that deep place of our soul, thinking about the meaning of life and why all of this matters. That harsh sting in our gut, those tears that mock you, and even the bland resignation to just keep working for the weekend, just keep raising kids because I have to, just keep staying married because that's the rule, just do this or that because it eases some tension. But overall, this messed up world ultimately just ends up in a grave. It goes away, gone. And the real kicker is this. I was raised in several evangelical churches where very well-meaning people, and they did mean well. They encouraged me with this kind of idea. What you do, Ben, doesn't really matter. Nobody would ever say those words to me. But the words that they did say meant that. What you do doesn't really matter. If you do bad stuff, Jesus forgives it, and it's cool anyway. And if you do good stuff, which you should, according to the rules, it doesn't really matter anyway, because you better not think you're earning anything. It all really washes out in the end after you die and then you're raised again and you're given this totally cleaned, totally pure slate. You don't have to take any of this nonsense with you. That, in the end, that's where the eternal life begins. That's where good things can happen. That's where the incorruptible life happens. Here is the physical stuff. There is the spiritual stuff. So, yeah, try to do good, try to not do bad, but either way, this life is depraved, it's frustrated, it's anxious, it's depressing. Just get used to it. This life is kind of pointless then. What you achieve is going to all be washed away, so don't be trying to achieve too much. It'll all get destroyed because it's all just part of this messed up world. Your photo books and your memories, your whole existence here on earth, it'll be totally eradicated, totally erased. Yeah. And then you kind of say, yeah? There's a reason why when the house is on fire, we run for the photo books. Do I just want it to all be erased? Is this just the doldrum monotony of rolling one day to the other and just waiting for my time to expire when finally good things can happen? I think that is the kind of Christianity that drove me to the brink of suicide. It was a hopelessness, but there were a lot of great Christian words to describe it. I think that was the opiate of the masses that Karl Marx observed rightly, a sort of feel-goodery. 
And at the heart of my problem, and at the heart of what I want to talk about next here, is my misunderstanding of the full truth of resurrection. What resurrection means in a very comprehensive way. So our main text is going to be 1 Corinthians 15. You keep your finger there if you want. I'll come to it in just a second. First, I want to step back even further from the time when Paul is writing this to his friends in Corinth. We'll roll way back. We'll go back to Homer, Iliad, Odyssey time and talk a little Greek mythology. There was a king of Corinth. Back in the day, it was Ephyra, was the name of the city. But this king, his name was King Sisyphus, so the legend goes. And King Sisyphus, he was, he was a really cool dude. He was good with commerce. He was good with navigation. He contributed much to his people. He also very much enjoyed killing travelers who came to his city. He enjoyed killing people. Well, this goes against the way that the Greek is supposed to operate and the laws of hospitality. So Zeus gets very upset, as Zeus should, I'm sure. And so Zeus punishes Sisyphus. And the story gets weird and wild like Greek mythology does, but it's the end of the story that has captivated our attention for since then, since way back. Philosophers, artists, uh, lots of people point to Sisyphus because of the end of the story, which is Zeus condemning Sisyphus to rolling a rock, a giant boulder, up a hill, okay? You have to roll a boulder up a hill. Sisyphus thought himself to be very clever, Zeus said, you think you're clever, here's clever. I will enchant that boulder. And right when it gets to the top of the hill, just before it crests the summit, that boulder is going to roll all the way back down. And then you've got to push it all the way back up, Sisyphus. And Sisyphus then is chained to eternal, monotonous pointlessness, rolling the rock up a hill just so that it rolls back down, and then he rolls it back up. And people have looked to that metaphor, that idea, as a great example to characterize the human existence. It's like rolling a rock up and down a hill for no real reason at the end of the time. That's interesting, isn't it? Why did the ancients, these ancient philosophers, all the way through every generation up to you and I today, why do we think that way? When you're working on things, your schoolwork, your vocational work, your homework, when you're working with your children to raise them, sometimes it feels so utterly frustrating and pointless. Why? What builds into our mind that this doesn't actually matter? Death. The reality of death is what makes life seem pointless. Decay. Corruptible everything. It's all corruptible. All the achievement and progress, all the construction, all of everything ultimately is lost. The memories you make with your children, gone. The times you have with your spouse will be eradicated in death. The loving warmth of your home will grow cold forever. Tens of thousands of hours that you spend working on your accounting or engineering, your teaching, your factory work, all of those hours spent working, ultimately gone when you die. The scent of your Aunt Joan's croissants on Thanksgiving, you'll never remember that again. 
It's just physical stuff. The social status and speed and security that your car gives you ultimately will rust away and just be gone. Who cares? The fun you remember from all of those thrills and various ecstasies that you can somehow achieve will be gone. It's all just going to go away. Yes, I say the sting of death is alive and well in our average mainstream way of thinking. So what if you're shown that you will not die? What if you're shown that your memories will not fade away? What if you're shown that you will live eternally forever and the things that you choose to invest yourself in now will have eternal value? I think that would change everything. I think it would change the way you feel about life. I think it would change the way you think about life. And I know that you would want to know one thing, and that is, how is that possible? And the answer to that question has everything to do with resurrection and an empty tomb, not a full tomb. Paul writes about this to people who lived in Corinth, where Sisyphus once reigned. That's a little ironic, don't you think? Now, 1 Corinthians 15, I can't break it all the way down for you here unless you want to hang out till about 3 or 4 p.m. We have ham to eat, so I'm going to paraphrase the front end, okay? The Corinthians on the front end of 1 Corinthians 15 are arguing about whether or not resurrection can even happen. Is this even possible? And Paul will say, oh, yes, it can happen, and it did happen. And if you say it can't happen, then you're saying that Jesus couldn't have raised. And if that's what you believe, then what is the point of all of this? He'll continue. He points to the eyewitnesses. He says there are about 500 plus who saw the resurrected Christ and talked with him. Not only is this possible in theory, he will say, it is already very real, concretely. If you're at 1 Corinthians 15, pick it up in verse 12 with me. He says, now if Christ is being preached as having been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is futile, pointless. And our faith, he says, is empty. Also, we are found to be false witnesses of God, about God, because we have said against God that he raised Christ from the dead, when in reality he didn't raise him if indeed the dead can't be raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still in your sins. Mm. Notice that Paul has not yet said anything about heaven. He says if there's no resurrection, then the gospel is stupid. Your faith is totally ineffective. The eyewitnesses are all liars, including me. Death is still your supreme reality that retains its destructive control over you. That's still in play. 
always reminding you that your life is pointlessly about rolling boulders up and down a hill, and then it's gone. And if there's no resurrection, all believers who have died are irretrievably gone, them and all of their lives and memories and so forth evaporated. That's pretty bleak, (laughs) you know. Now what has he just done? He has located the reality of resurrection into the heart of the gospel, your faith, your life, your purpose, everything. Paul is trying to just drill it right into the core of who you are and say resurrection and the hope of it makes all the difference right now. You can see how he is saying so much more than you should pity Christians if they don't get to live forever later, okay? He's saying you should pity Christians because everything in their life, if they're reading resurrection right, everything in their life banks on it, everything. That causes me to say a little bit, hmm, do I think about resurrection when I'm disciplining and training my children? Do I think about resurrection when I'm splitting firewood out in the backyard? Or do I just think about it on Easter Sunday? He's saying that the very concept of resurrection is at the core of the gospel, of your faith, and it shapes your day-to-day life. That's profound. Resurrection transforms the way that you think about changing diapers. You just don't think about that, do you? I think about that as tedious monotony I just have to get through. I have to get through all this crap. (laughs) Your loving investment in human beings, Paul would say, whether it's changing diapers or sitting down for counseling and coffee, whatever it is, your loving investment in human beings, that lasts forever. It doesn't get evaporated. It matters big time. It is eternally valuable. It totally matters. It alters the way that that you view your friendships that you view your marriage, that you view your neighbors and your work. It absolutely overhauls what you think about spending time in your workplace or with coworkers. Block parties, yard work, how you engage with nurses and doctors, what you talk about, what you spend your time thinking about, how you treat your neighbors in assisted living facilities, how you talk with grandchildren and aunts and uncles and cousins. It changes everything. Where does your money go? Where does your energy and resource go? When resurrection's not at the core of your day-to-day existence, then very significant and bad consequences will happen. That was me sitting on a porch in Minnesota with the shotgun under my chin, ready to pull the trigger. Resurrection made no difference. I had already, this is the worst part, I had already committed a kind of Christian suicide, if you will. A resignation that from here until death isn't all that significant. That's Christian suicide, and it's far too familiar for so many of us. It's been one of the greatest critiques toward Christianity. Many of our existentialist philosophers today who don't like the faith say, all you're doing is trying to make yourselves feel better during an otherwise pointless life. Sometimes we've taken on so much pointlessness that they actually have a good critique. By seeing resurrection purely in terms of something that happens later, not the core driving force of my hope and my life, then life didn't really matter. 
And suicide would just be a quicker route to the afterlife, which is where the real stuff matters. That's where incorruptibility happens, you see? And woven too into my thinking was this sense that because I'm physical, it's, it's kind of pointless. This is what corrupts and decays. And then when I move into the afterlife, I become a spiritual being, immaterial being, and that's where incorruptibility happens. This was the vision that I had been given. Well, we've got to continue in 1 Corinthians 15 because he's going to blow that up. Paul says to his friends in Corinth, resurrection is real, and it's going to happen in two stages. We'll pick it up again then in verse 21. First, he'll say, Jesus gets resurrected. Happy Easter, okay? That's the first step of all resurrection for humankind. For since death came through a man, he says, verse 21, then the resurrection of the dead also comes through a human being. Death comes through a human being. Resurrection comes through a human being. For just as in Adam everybody dies, so also in Christ everybody will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. He dies first. Then when Christ comes, those belong to him. They come second. And then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has brought an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be eliminated is death. Jesus starts this new existence, this new life, by fighting death with death. He takes the ring into Mordor and chucks it in Mount Doom. He fights evil with death. He takes it upon himself. And then everybody in Jesus' ring of fellowship with him, all who are in Jesus' life, they raise with him. They experience that resurrection. That kind of makes you want to be in Jesus' life, doesn't it? It really does for me. And again, Paul says this is so central that if this isn't true, we should simply pursue the things that are not in Christ. I'm paraphrasing the next few verses here. He says, if this, gossip, if this isn't legit, then eat and drink and be merry because you're all going to die anyway. Get your kicks, throw a few parties, don't think too much of it, because it all just goes into the grave. He says, go for it. Find that fleeting happiness. But if resurrection is true, and if it's only found in Christ, then living your life in Christ is living a life indestructible. That's profound. In some sense, he says, if the mind and the will and the wisdom of God are all going to turn out to be bunk and stick with the best wisdom of the world. Push that boulder up the hill, Sisyphus. Just keep pushing. Work for the weekend. Try to minimize pain and, ex and, and, ex and bring pleasures about. Whatever. Fight to get your way. Go for it. Condemn your children when they don't please you. Lie, cheat, steal, do what needs to happen. Go ahead and hold grudges, be bitter toward people. What, it doesn't matter. 
Do what you need to do to get ahead. Go ahead. But if what the world has seen in Christ is true, if he really did leave behind an empty tomb, then death cannot take away what you learn and what you remember, what you glean, what you store up, what you build and what you establish, what you pour yourself into, who you pour yourself into. When you're doing these things in faith, in obedience to God, in love for God, in love for neighbor, in allegiance to Christ, when you live in that way, death cannot take it from you. That is awesome. Those things last forever. Now, here's where it gets really fun. We have to break down a little bit of wording here. This is where the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus becomes really important. Have you ever felt that heaven was really not all that interesting? When I was a boy, I would far rather have gone straight to hell than go to heaven. I'm telling the truth now. I had a vision of heaven, which was a place where I would be a spiritual sort of orb, and I would float on clouds and sing all day. I was told, my Sunday school teachers, they meant super well. They're like, when you go to heaven, it's going to be, you get to sing all day, every day. I'm like, oh my goodness, please. Gosh, no, give me a treehouse or a fishing pole or something. This just sounds awful. Because I had been invited to see a picture of resurrection that had very little to do with Jesus' body being raised and actually walking out of a tomb. I was invited to see this sort of transference from one kind of being to something that I had no reference to. But wait, look at the gospel stories. We read about women who go into an empty tomb. They don't go into a tomb with an emptied body. It's not as though the immaterial spirit of Jesus just departed and left his corpse. No, he, he walked out of there. There's no more people in this tomb. Real body, skin and bones, talking, breathing, eating food, still bearing the scars of his crucifixion. Jesus walks out of there. After his life was killed, after he goes through real death, he rises up with all of his memories. We see it, don't we? He remembers his friends and goes to them. He's walking as Daniel talked earlier, right at the opening of our service today. He walks with these two men on the road to Emmaus. I can never pronounce that word, Emmaus, Emmaus. They're walking on this road, and Jesus, it says Jesus is teaching them all about Moses and the prophets. Jesus didn't know that stuff when he was a kid. We're told he had to sit in synagogue for hours and hours and hours studying and learning. Man, so many times when I sat in college or high school, whatever, junior, every class I sat in, I'm like, what is the point of this? Good grief. I don't think, I don't know if Jesus felt that way, but I do know that everything he spent his time learning, he took with him because he spent his time learning it in faith toward the Father. He did it out of obedience to God, a loving trust in God, and he takes it with him. He remembers his friends. He remembers all that he learned in the synagogue school, if you will, probably quote-unquote school. He takes it with him. He lived in faith toward God. His life then was incorruptible. Now, 
I got to give a warning for this next passage because I've already sort of teased it. Now we're going to get really specific. We have to be really careful reading this next section of 1 Corinthians because you and I have grown up in a modern world and we have a sense of physical and spiritual as being totally different. It's just how we've been raised. Our philosophy, our science, our rationalism, it all suggests to us physical is this that I can touch and feel and observe. Spiritual is immaterial and it's invisible. That is not how Paul is talking in this next text. It comes up in this writing and I want to be really careful. So, paraphrasing verses 35 to 44. Notice how he uses a metaphor to describe your life now. He says it's like a seed. You're naked as a naked seed. He's pointing back really to the creation story in Genesis. Adam and Eve's nakedness kind of come to mind as he says, there's a seed and then there's a plant. You're like a seed now and a seed is destined for a certain spot, namely buried in the dirt. That's the movement it's headed in. A growing plant is growing up and out to fullness to bearing fruit. So you don't bury broccoli crowns in the dirt. And when you're having your ham and chicken later, you don't serve broccoli seeds as a side dish, right? These are very different things. Notice, however, they're both physical material realities. So, so right there, we kind of can see how Paul's thinking. Now read these next verses with me carefully, verses 44 to 49. I think they've been widely misinterpreted often, so read it patiently with me. In verse 44, he'll say, it is sown a natural body. You might have a physical body. It is, your life is sown as a physical body, and then it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, then there's also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first human, Adam, became a living person. The last Adam, which is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, made of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the one made of dust, so too are those made of dust, okay? And like the one from heaven, so too are those made, or who, so those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, let us also bear the image of the man of heaven. At first glance, that sounds like a major contrast between material and immaterial, doesn't it? And the word physical that we have in our English Bibles is a good word. That's a good translation. The problem is you and I read the word physical a lot different than they, than they did before our modern era. I've mentioned that. It's, we read it as this stuff. But that's not what Paul is trying to get at here. He uses this word psychikos. And that's where we have our root word, that's the root of our word psyche, okay? And he is saying that human beings are either this, psychikos, or they're pneumatikos. They're either driven by the average world's way of thinking, or psyche, or they're driven by a, the spirit, the pneuma, the pneumatikos. 
He uses the same language in chapter 2 where he compares believer to non-believer. He says one is natural and one is spiritual. He's not saying one is a physical being and, and that's your non-believer and then believers are actually just floating orbs of light. <laughs> okay? He's describing the ways that two different real human beings are driven in this world. You can ask how a ship is made, if it's made of wood or iron. That's a different question than saying, is it powered by wind or by a steam engine? So he's trying to draw our minds into, when he says natural body versus spiritual body, it's not material versus immaterial, it's what is the driving force in your life? Later on, he'll say, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. And again, we're like, oh, right, that means people can't be in the kingdom, human beings. But that doesn't fit with resurrection. Jesus is a people, a real people, with real blood and real skin, and he's in the kingdom. That's Paul's technical term of saying things that are incorruptible cannot be in the kingdom of God. Sin, death, decay, destruction, that doesn't enter into the kingdom of God. So that's what he's contrasting. We choose to live according to the spirit of God or the psyche, the mentality of average humanity. Here's the conclusion then. Becoming one who is spiritual is not about the difference between material and non-material. That's obvious in the passage itself. Look at verse 49, the very end of that. He says, let us bear the image of the man of heaven. He's saying you can bear the image of the man of heaven right now. He's not saying if you really think about it hard enough, you can evaporate your skin and bones. He's saying you can take on the life of the man of heaven. We can't follow Paul's instruction if he's teaching us to become immaterial. There's no way we could do that. And then when he says, let us bear the image of the man of heaven, we hear echoes of his other writings. Let us be in Christ. Let us put on the new man. That's his way of thinking about it. Let us live the life incorruptible right now, today, so that the average psyche of this world, which leads you to the conclusion that life is pointless, where the most celebrated and noble achievements you can dream up are ultimately worthless. Every country, every nation, every civilization, every government ultimately all falls and corrupts, destroys. Like Sisyphus pushing a boulder up a hill for no reason. You can live that way. He says, let's not. Let us instead live in Jesus so that this corruptible life that we have actually gets swallowed up in the life of Jesus himself. Pick it up with me in the last bit we'll read. Verse 53 is where we'll start. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Paraphrase, do something different than the rest of our pop culture mainstream world tells you to do with your body. Do something different with what you think, with what you love. Live like an immortal. And there's one immortal so far, and that's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's the one who raised. He says, that's 
the eternal life. Put on his kind of life. Verse 54, now when this perishable puts on the imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will happen. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, dear brothers and sisters, be firm. Do not be moved. Always be outstanding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain when it's in the Lord. Rolling a boulder up a hill for the false god Zeus is as pointless as getting drunk to pleasure yourself or escape. It's as pointless as getting money to serve yourself, getting angry to prove yourself, getting stuff to satisfy yourself, getting judgmental to feel good about yourself, getting it right because that's the law. That's all just vain. It's endless, frustrating labor. It dies, it stays in the grave, and it is pointless. Some of us spend most of our time in these arenas, and I regret to say I've spent most of my life up until I found Jesus living totally pointlessly. The great existentialist and postmodern philosophers of our day are absolutely right when they say life is totally pointless because they are always commenting on life outside of life in Christ. A great philosopher named Albert Camus, I say great because of his popularity. He wrote a book in 1942 and it's called The Myth of Sisyphus. He, like many, have looked at that picture and said, yep, that's it. He resonates with Sisyphus's pointless boulder rolling plight to make this Camus's most famous statement to us. He says, there is really only one serious philosophical problem and that is suicide. Deciding whether or not life is worth the living is to answer the fundamental question in philosophy. All other questions flow from that. That mentality has gone viral, my friends. It has gone viral. It is so infected into our proper way of understanding, we almost don't even think about it. In his book, he points out how absurd and dumb life is. And then here's his conclusion. At the very end, as he's worked through it all, he says this. This is it. The struggle itself, he says, is enough to fill a man's heart. That's the best you're going to get. The struggle itself is enough to fill your heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. Isn't that the modern thinking? I think that's become the goal of the modern Portlander. Just imagine that that empty, parched heart is actually just okay. It's what it is. These soaking wet eyelids are just the way it is. Imagine that it's okay. It's the best you got. Here's a latte to help. 
Here's a whiskey to warm you. Here's some television to make it more tolerable. Kind of ease your way into the inevitable grave. To look at the pointlessness of life and to accept it with a pint and a Percocet. To stop searching for meaning or value or purpose. Why would you? It doesn't matter. Just resign yourself to finding your favorite boulder and just keep rolling it up that hill. Who cares? Why? Because of the sting of death. It all corrupts and dies. This, my friends, is why resurrection needs to come into the core of how we think and act toward one another. Every single day that you spend living in Christ is a day you get to take with you. Every single act, all of the things you glean and what God does in your heart and soul living for him, you take with you into eternity. What does fade away? Sin. Jesus takes all of that sin onto himself and he buries it forever. It's gone. You don't want to be in that moment and have your life just be sin. So he blots it out. He takes it out. He destroys sin and death. Paul says that all we do outside of faith is sin. It's pointless. We believe Jesus takes it all away. That's where my suicide desire came from. To that point, I had done nothing in my life that was actually meaningful in any way. It was 100% just serving myself, and I knew it. And I wouldn't have used this kind of language to describe it, but I knew it. Deep down, it's all just pointless. Just like the angels said to the women that first Easter morning, they could have asked me, hey, Ben, why do you keep looking for life in the midst of death? What hope I found when I met a resurrected king. I mean that. It changed my life. Said, Ben, this does matter. You can have a life that matters. If you accept my invitation, would you enter into my life? Says Jesus. It's an incorruptible life. The life within Christ, your actions, your investments, your learning, your day to day, it does last forever. It becomes totally worth it when you live in Jesus, the incorruptible life. It's not just a grueling, frustrating festival of pointless pain and constant sin just because you get to go to heaven later or something like that. It doesn't have to be that way. No, your life is infinitely valuable. You can choose to waste it with the mainstream thinking of this world, pursuing self, or you can give it to Jesus and never again fear the sting of death. You don't have to run for the photo books when the house is burning down because you'll remember all of that. Alzheimer's, dementia, decay, death. I'm so afraid of these things because of what they say they're gonna take from me. And it's true they will if the way I'm living is not in Christ. But if I'm living in Christ, it lasts beyond the grave. We see it in Jesus. The moment that I had yesterday afternoon, seeing the sunshine breaking through with my daughter and her beautiful brown hair and that golden sun gleaming and her eyes filled with wonder looking at the worms in the ground and the bugs she had caught. And I sit there and my heart is warmed with thankfulness for God, for the beauty of life, for my family that he gave to me, which is infinitely valuable 
that memory that I have, I will always have. It comes with me through the grave into the next life. That's a beautiful thought. You all have memories just like that. And if you're living in Jesus, be encouraged. You take them with you. They don't fade away. Resurrection changes every single part of every day of our lives. When we turn our lives to God and accept Jesus' invitation into his life, which is incorruptible. That's a beautiful thing. Happy Easter. Pray with me. Jesus, we love you. We look at life. We have been taught so many things by this world that we don't even realize we've been taught. Help us to believe your teaching more than anything else. God, I pray that through your spirit you would drive the men and the women and the children in this, in this room to your word. Today, tomorrow, this week, help them to meditate and think deeply on the truth of resurrection and what it means that our lives are not lived in vain. We're not just pushing boulders up a hill for no reason. But we are in you, in a kingdom that will flourish and grow. We will invent and live and create and cultivate. We'll work. We will love all of the goodness of life with you. And we will take the lives that we live in you in this world now into the next. And we're thankful for that. You paid a very great price to make that possible for us, Jesus. And I'll speak on behalf of all of the believers here now and say, we are totally thankful. We trust you with our lives, and we love you. Amen.